Have you ever wanted to be bold, to be brave, speak up, take a new path in life, but you wish you had someone to walk beside you? This is A Voice of Her Own, a podcast about our journey to agency, authority, and action. Each week, you'll get inspiration, actionable practices, and support from me and from brave women of all kinds, walking their own path and telling their own stories. I'm Diva. I'm a trauma-informed coach and a doctoral student in psychology. So I know a few things about seeking an authentic life, but I'm still learning too. So join me as we support, encourage, and inspire each other. This is a podcast about showing up. This is a voice of her own. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of A Voice of Her Own. I'm your host, Diva Davison. Today I want to talk about the witch wound. This is a term that I heard fairly recently within the last year or so. I was listening to a podcast by Denise DT, um, Denise Duffington Thomas, I think it is, and she is a manifestation money business coach. She's great. I love her, highly recommend her podcast, Um, and she's very engaging, and I don't normally listen to podcasts while I'm working, um, particularly while I'm out working with horses, but on this day, I think it was last summer, it was a beautiful day, I was mucking a paddock, and I thought, well, I'll just put my phone in my pocket and listen, because I've been really enjoying listening to her podcast. And as soon as she started to talk about the witch wound, I had a visceral reaction. I stopped what I was doing. I stood still and I thought, what is this? I had an immediate resonance with it. So to give credit where credit's due, um, Denise said that she found this term from Lisa Lister's book, Witch. And I do not think that Lisa Lister came up with this term. Um, I have not read her book. I did read on Goodreads folks saying that it was um, transphobic. I don't know if that's true. I'm going to put it in the show notes. I'll put everything that I refer to today in the show notes so you can look at it and make your own decisions. But I just want to give credit because that's where Denise got the term. The witch wound is an intergenerational trauma based on the witch trials and the inquisition of Europe and the Americas over several hundred years. And the idea is that this intergenerational trauma was passed down through generations of women based on the idea that if you were an other in any way, if you were too loud, too visible, too... um, sexual, if you stood out, if you went against the grain, if you said that you didn't agree with something, if you, you know, in the case of the women during the witch trials, if you weren't docile, obedient, and available for your father, husband, or priest 24-7 in a myriad of ways, you could be labeled a witch. Um, And I want to point out that although Lisa Lister's book and um, some of the things that I'm going to talk about in just a moment are based on the idea of the neo-pagan revival of this word witch. 
Um, we have to sort of separate out what these words mean. So the witch wound is a generalized term relating back to the witch trials. Um, the vast majority of people in those trials were not practicing witchcraft in any way. And if they were practicing witchcraft, we don't know what kind, because when people said that they were in concert with the devil, it was usually under severe torture. So that's not to be confused with the neo-pagan Northern European, um, sometimes called Celtic revivalist religion that is um, being practiced and is becoming more, I think, I, I don't want to say more common, but people are more aware of it. That is something that started, um, you know, within the last hundred years. So two different things. Um, but people who do practice that do often research the legacy of witchcraft, however you define it. So I want to point out that none of that has anything to do with the witch wound because the witch wound is something that doesn't have any, it, all that matters is that you're a woman. This also applies to other folks who are othered. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that you cannot be in the society without having some repercussions. Um, or I should say there are a lot of things that you're not supposed to be without repercussions. And so I'm not trying to limit it to women, but in this particular instance, the witch wound is a woman's legacy of intergenerational trauma based on what happened to women who were in some way other than the cultural requirements of the time period of the witch trials. Okay, that was a lot to say. To take it back, let me give you some examples. The reason that it resonated with me is because I could immediately think of all of these ways in which I have very intense reactions to things like being seen, to being bold, to um, putting myself in a position where I'm going to draw attention to myself and people are going to notice me and then start to notice the fact that many of my beliefs and ways of being are not culturally, conventionally feminine. And one of the things that Denise said is, and this I think is really my, my point of resonance, is she said, have you ever done something like just something small, like make a Facebook post or an Instagram post, and it seems like a little edgy. And after you do post it, you have what feels like an irrational response. Like you start crying or you start to have the shakes or you start to feel incredibly anxious and it's disproportionate to the act that just happened. That is the witch wound. And I can say for absolute certain that this happens to me all the time and that I really have to walk and talk myself through many of these situations. For example, when I was looking at which episodes were going to go first and what order I wanted to put them in, I said, oh, I can't lead with the witch wound because dot, 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 because people will think that I'm a pagan, because Christians won't listen to me because people think I'm a strident feminist because that word has a lot of connotations and I should just start with something like the path to selfhood or something like that, something that is more palatable to everyone. That right there is the witch wound because that's not what I want to say. That's not what I'm here to say. That's not what I'm here to do. The journey to selfhood is really important. It is an important episode. 
it's going to be <laughs> included in my playlist. But the fact of the matter is, is that what was alive in me that kept coming up was the witch wound and wanting to talk about it. And the part of me that wanted to censor myself was an example of what I'm talking about. And I think if you are honest with yourself and you actually inquire what your motivations are during the day, I think you're gonna find that it comes up for you too. And it probably will surprise you how often and how often we give into it. And there's a lot of reasons for that. There's, you know, as long as we're all mammals, then there's always going to be consequences to being ostracized or to being othered. And that's a whole ball of wax that's probably enough for several episodes. But I just want to say, hey, yeah, of course, there's a reason for this. But the thing that's interesting about the witch wound is how we've sort of incorporated this feminine fear of standing out. And it inhibits us from the reason that Denise DT was talking about is she's a business coach. And she said, this might get in the way of your success because you might not want to stand out, be seen, be visible, say you're an authority, you know, tell your boss that you don't think it's working, tell your coworker that they need to pick up their share, you know, all of these things that we tend to not do for fear of being standing all by ourselves and having other people fear or resent us. So let's see, I want to say before I take a little break here, I just wanna point out again that this is not a pagan experience and it's not even just a woman's experience, it's an othering experience. And so it can apply to a lot of people and there are certainly, when I talk about the witch wound, I am, as a cis white woman of primarily Celtic roots, I am talking about a genocide that happened in Northern Europe primarily and then in the Americas, but I'm not <clears throat> talking about the genocide that, for example, happened to indigenous people, which has its own intergenerational trauma or genocide in Rwanda, or the Ukraine under the Stalinist regime. Okay, so there's lots of places where intergenerational trauma um, can be found. It was first studied um, with Holocaust survivors. And I'd like to talk a little bit about intergenerational trauma, collective trauma, what that means, what we know about it. Um, but I'm gonna take a little break first and get a sip of tea, and then I will be back to talk about that. All right, it is time for a shout out. So a shout out from me is something, someone, someplace that I love, appreciate, recommend. Sometimes it's an affiliate link, most of the time it's not. Today, I want to talk about a person who's been super influential in my thinking. I've never met her. I am not an affiliate for her. I just simply wanna give some credit and encourage people to go check her out. Her name is Kelly Deals, that's D-I-E-L-S, and you can find her at kellydeals.com, or you can find her on Instagram at kelly.deals. Kelly is a cultural critic and development coach for culture makers. She is trained as a political and feminist theorist, 
And she has made the whole journey of being an entrepreneur so much clearer for me. And that is only from subscribing to her Sunday love letters. Her Sunday love letters are totally free. There's no extraneous content. It's not a selling thing. It's something she does to talk about culture and give insight into how we're participating and educate people so that we can make a more conscious and thoughtful choice about the way that we're participating in culture. I think she's amazing. I highly recommend you go to her website, kellydeals.com, and sign up for her Sunday newsletter. It's totally free. She's really cool. You're going to learn a lot from her. So that is the shout out. Okay, we're back. Thanks for hanging out with me while I had a little sip of tea. So I want to talk about intergenerational trauma. It's also called historical or transgenerational trauma. And it's a relatively new concept. It's something that has not been studied extensively. It does have some really interesting studies. um, And it's something that people are more and more interested in. And part of the reason they're interested in it is because of a similar but not the same study um, or a series of studies now in the trauma field on ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. These are not the same things, um, but they are similar and they are related. And so intergenerational trauma, as I explained, is basically the secondary trauma that comes from a group of people who have experienced something traumatic or um, a family, it could be, um, you know, something that's passed down one line of your family or another based on historical experiences, not based on your direct experience, but based on the experiences of others. And there is a nature and a nurture aspect to this. The nurture aspect or the environmental aspect or cultural is much clearer to us. The nature or biological factor in it is something that's pretty newly discovered and something that's still being explored. So on the nature point of view, we have epigenetics. We have markers that determine whether or not your DNA is expressed in a simple way. It's whether, you know, it's turned on or turned off. And there is some evidence now that, um, that historical trauma can be passed down through generations and can affect whether or not certain certain genetic material is expressed. And the first really big, well, I shouldn't say big, it was big news, but the first study was, it had a fairly small um, group. It was 32 Holocaust survivors and their children, and then there was a control group. And what the study found is that all of the Holocaust survivors and their offspring had a change in the FKBP5 gene. They all had it, whereas the control group did not. And this is sort of the first time that people looked and said, okay, wait, this whole idea that we carry things in our body is can be literally true. So The idea of epigenetics is that there are heritable changes to DNA that determine the on or off of genes. So that's the nature part. The nurture part um, is something that is both familial, 
cultural, psychological, societal, there are many layers to it. It could be as simple as being uh, told, don't trust anyone, don't ask questions, keep your head down, um, don't, don't be a bother, do good in school, pay attention to what Father McCullough says, you know, don't have sex before marriage. Like there's so many different ways that this is expressed. And some of it is expressed explicitly, like things that are told to you. And some of it's expressed implicitly, things that you are aware of, you're aware of the consequences. You might see, for example, um, one of your schoolmates being bullied for something, or you might see, um, you know, if, if from one of my family's examples, um, one of your siblings being sent away, taken out of school and sent away to a home for unwed mothers because she violated that. So these are all ways that we hear or are told or understand the rules that people before us learned in order to survive. They are things that they learned in order to get by and in order not to be tortured or killed. So we know that there are implicit and explicit ways that we're told by the groups of people that we are part of how to behave, and that can come from their own experience of trauma. But there's also unconscious ways that we get these messages from society and from culture, and there are perhaps even ways within our DNA. So that's sort of the generalized understanding of what intergenerational trauma is. And the easiest way to think about it is you are having responses based on information that is coming from the experience of someone else. It's not something that you experience directly, but it's still having a profound effect on you. And a similar but not the same um, phenomenon is ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. So I was introduced to ACEs, I think in 2016, by my partner who was in a college class that had that as a requirement to watch. And he said, oh, this is really fascinating. You should see this. And I said, oh, a pediatrician? Like, mm, okay, whatever. She's amazing. If you have not seen her TED Talk, I highly, highly recommend that you go look it up and watch it this week. It's such a profound way of looking at the experience of others, and it transforms your own idea of what is happening with someone else from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. And before I get any further into it, I want to point out that sometimes people say, oh, well, but all of this talk about trauma is making everyone into a victim. And I think that that is short-sighted and incorrect. What I experience is that it's empowering to have an understanding of your own process. So for me, for example, prior to learning about ACEs, I had certain stories about myself that were very entrenched. And they said, you're not this, you're not that, you can't do this, you can't do that, you won't do this, you won't do that. And you know, all kinds of things like you're lazy, you're a procrastinator, you're not productive, you don't have what it takes, all these sort of internalized things that came out of recognizing some of my own nervous system trauma-based responses without knowing what they were. So when I 
learned about ACEs. And after watching that TED Talk, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris is a phenomenal woman. She is um, a pediatrician. She's now the <clears throat> Surgeon General of California. And um, I've heard her talk in person. And um, she's really uh, brilliant. She's brilliant. That's all I can say. So when I started to learn about ACEs, I was lucky enough to soon thereafter be in a social work environment working in the social work world and i got quite a bit of education around it and about what it means to be trauma informed this is sort of my first introduction outside of my classic psychology education that i got at the undergraduate level this was sort of a more hands-on like how what does that mean how do we do it where do we take it why are we trauma informed or trauma responsive and part of that education was going to a conference on ACEs. And I will tell you that at this conference, there were times that I actually had to excuse myself from the table and go into the restroom and have a good cry because it meant so much to me to be able to understand why I responded the way that I did and to be able to reframe it. So the idea of ACEs is that there are essentially you're assessed for them and there's a score and however many you score has been shown to have an associated risk factor for physical illnesses and diseases and the higher your aces the higher your risk factor and it's quite dramatic it's quite exp exponential and it's based on a really large sample um, and it's been replicated now but the original study was done in conjunction with kaiser permanente and a huge sample and the results were extremely um they they were irrefutable so that initial study of aces showed that what happens to us <clears throat> the trauma we experience has dramatic and obvious consequences. And it means that we reframe from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. That's the trauma-informed piece. And then the trauma-responsive piece is, and what do we do about it? How can I support you? What can we do? And often we find that there's a lot we could do. There's a lot that we can do to support others, and there's a lot we can do to support ourselves. So that's the responsive piece. So this was all very eye-opening to me, and it actually set me down a path of learning about the nervous system, learning about trauma responses, and recognizing that this is something that I had had in the back of my mind for quite a long time, having come from a law enforcement background, which is, of course, full of secondary trauma. That's all you get all day long. And then working in social work, which is, again, full of secondary trauma. So long story short, ACEs and intergenerational trauma are two things that we can look at in terms of understanding our own responses to what's happening in our world and it's a way for us to reframe what it is that is occurring when we are triggered when we are overstimulated when we are overwhelmed when we are threatened in some way and the witch wound just to make a long circuitous route back around is essentially a threat that is happening based on other people's experience 
And I want to be really clear about this because even though we're talking about having a response that's based on somebody else's trauma, i.e. the people who came before us, the fact of the matter is, is that the, the, the violence done to women because they are sexual or stand out or go against the grain or are loud or any of those things is still very real. It happens today. It happens all over the world. It's not something that happens somewhere else. It happens here. So it's, it's a credible threat. And I think that that's an important part to remember. The witch wound is a credible threat. So I'm going to take a quick break and drink some tea while we mull that over. And when I come back, I'm going to talk about my own process, what I've learned about how we respond to these things. I'm going to talk about what I do instead of having an unconscious response. And then we're going to talk about the takeaway, which is something that you can take out. And if this is resonant for you and you find yourself experiencing this, some strategies to move through it and release it. So we'll be back in just a minute. Okay. Thanks for hanging out with me through that. So I want to just talk about my own process and how I began to recognize when this was happening and what I've learned about how to deal with it. So when I first started grad school, I was very overwhelmed. The work was rigorous. There was a lot of it. It was very intensive. It wasn't academic as much as it was inner work. There was a lot of emotion to delving into the work that was there. And I began to notice that I was having what I called at the time intense bouts of procrastination. And when I say intense bouts of procrastination, what I mean is that I would suddenly feel like I needed to go lie down. Like I might even pass out. I would just all of a sudden be unable to do anything except really stop everything that I was doing and go lay down in bed. And I thought, this is so weird. You know, am I, do I, am I not working out? Am I not eating? What am I eating? Am I eating too many carbs? What's going on? I don't know. And it was really strange. And I started to have a lot of inner criticism around it, a lot of shame. I was getting behind. I felt really shitty about that. I felt all of the inner critics start to, you know, rear up and say like, oh, are you even prepared for this? And maybe you just, you know, have too much deep down that you're uncovering. And, and, and there was a whole lot of inner dialogue that went along with it that was really unpleasant. And I did not know anything about the nervous system at that time because that's not something that you get when you're in your basic standard undergraduate psychology work, or at least five years ago, that wasn't true. So I am a person who likes to take on a lot. I'm a person who likes to take on a lot of projects. I'm always curious. I'm always adding extra things to my plate, which is ironic given the fact that I often call myself lazy. Um, or at least I certainly was back then. And so one of the things that I took on at the same time as graduate school was a program called Equisoma. And this is a program that uh, was founded by a Canadian, 
um, psychologist named Sarah Schlott, and it's based on the work of Dr. Peter Levine and somatic experiencing and the work of Dr. Stephen Porges, uh, which is polyvagal theory, and the work of Dr. Dan Siegel, which is the um, interpersonal um, regulation. And this was a whole new window into understanding myself. And it was it was based on the interactions with horses that we have as equine therapeutic services providers. So it was a window that was easy for me to look at without having a judgment about myself because I'd already been working with horses for 15 years and I already worked in the field and I could easily extrapolate the things that I was seeing in that work to what I was understanding in psychology. And one of the things that I learned is that <clears throat> when we have a threat, we have a, an involuntary response that moves not necessarily along a linear continuum, but you have a variety of responses that are more intense than others. And whether or not I perceived it consciously as a threat, the amount of emotional work, expectations, labor, anxiety, and everything surrounding my grad school work was in fact being perceived by my nervous system as a threat. So the <laughs> nervous system response in before you reach that threshold where it's identified as a threat could be something where you're trying to re-regulate, you're trying to re-regulate. And one of the ways that that might happen is through rest and digest, right? Where we're relaxing into a state, you know, much like after you have a big meal and, and you're digesting and your systems are all steady and on some kind of um, stasis where you're not feeling like you might need to spring into action. And as you move along and the, this perception of threat becomes larger, <clears throat> you might move to a state of freeze. And similarly, you might move to a state of fawn or appease. And finally, you might move to a state of flop. Now, you might move to a state of fight. I will say that um, almost all children and many women don't easily move into fight because it doesn't seem like something that's going to work out well. It does, it, do, it in fact does seem like another version of a threat. So uh, for, I'm gonna speak about for children because many of these responses we learn very early on. For children, you almost always don't have a fight response and you almost always don't have a flight response because you can't, you're a child. So normally you get in children a fawn or a peace where they fall into habits of people pleasing, of trying to be small, unobtrusive, being a good kid, uh, making sure that everybody's happy, watching the emotions of everyone. Those are all fawn responses or appease responses, depending on which psychological theory you follow. And 
I don't think it's surprising that those are often female responses. Those are responses that women use because they also do not want to have a physical conflict. And they also often do not feel that they could flee a situation. So even though our responses are what feels like extreme, our amygdala doesn't always, this is the part of our brain that tells us, hey, there's a threat and we need to do something about it, doesn't always differentiate. We don't always differentiate between a big threat and a small threat. It's just a threat. And that is exacerbated if you have something that happens over and over. It becomes your go-to response. So for a lot of people, their go-to response is to fawn. And if fawning doesn't work and if um, you aren't able to fight or um, flee, then you will often go to a freeze response. And freezing can be, you know, literally not moving, or it could be you're in bed all day, or it could be you're dissociating, or it could be you are present as far as everybody else is concerned, but in your own head, I mean, it's another form of dissociation, in your own head, you're just going through the motions. Those are all a version of freeze. And then if freeze doesn't work, then you have tonic immobility where you literally um, are able to be moved by other people, you don't move yourself. So when I was having the experience of a sudden onset of fatigue, fatigue so great that I thought I needed to lay down or I thought I might actually pass out, what was actually happening to me as I was having a nervous system response that was saying, we've gone past the rest and digest stage. We are now quickly entering the freeze stage. Um, because obviously you can't really fawn uh, your way out of um, all of the anxiety you're feeling. So that was the choice that I had from a nervous system perspective. And ultimately, all of those systems are in place to keep you from the threat. So when I sort of got a grip on like, oh, I'm literally having the freeze response and it's telling my body to stop working, that that is the response to this. That's the only way I can get away from it. It gave me the choice to do something different. So that was a huge turning point for me because what I began to take note of is what were the triggers leading up to it, not the actual expectation or homework or assignment or whatever it was that was happening in the moment, but what was happening prior to that. And if I could be conscious of the little steps along the way, or what we like to call trigger stacking, then I could stop and do something different before I went over that level, that threshold that sent me over into an amygdala response, that sent me over into a survival response. And so if you actually pay attention to yourself, and I can say that as much as I had already had five years of psychology under my belt and a career in law enforcement and social work, I wasn't really aware of my own responses. So I really had to stop and pay attention. And what I learned is your body tells you, you know, if you're listening and you get out of your head, your body will say things like, oh, my stomach feels tight and my mouth is dry 
and I feel kind of icky and parts of my body are going to sleep. And there's all these, you know, there's all these signals to you if you can stop and recognize them. So now when I start to sense that those things are beginning to happen, I literally decide to respect my body's impulse and I take a 10 minute nap. So I don't want to say that napping is the answer to everything, but what I do want to say is that it is really acceptable to respect your body's wisdom and to take yourself out of a stimulating experience and give yourself a rest, give yourself a break from external stimulation, out of the electronics, out of people's neediness, out of voices, out of having to reply or explain yourself, just stop, just stop doing those things for 10 minutes. 10 minutes is not that long. It's not unreasonable. So however you might do that, that's my first answer because that is instinctively what your body wants to do when you're starting to get overwhelmed. And if you choose to do it before you're over threshold, you can make it as simple as a 10 minute lie down. Just close your eyes, turn off your phone, no big deal. Okay, so sometimes you're at work and sometimes you're at the store and sometimes you're in the car. Sometimes you have your kids with you, so you can't do those things. And I totally get that. So there's some other choices that you could make along the way. One is choosing to breathe. <sighs> you can do just deep breathing. You could do box breathing, which is something we could talk about in another episode. You could do heart breathing. Um, there's any number of techniques for breathing to help tell your nervous system, hey, we're okay, we're okay. You know, just the way you would to a little kid. It's all right, you're fine. We're gonna get through this, no worries. The one thing that I think is great, and this is a little bit harder if you're in the car, but you can choose to move. So the work of Dr. Peter Levine talks about how if animals are in a freeze state, because for example, they've been caught by a predator, if for whatever reason the predator gets scared off and they are able to come out of that freeze state, i.e. they don't get eaten, what they often do is shake violently. They sometimes jump, hop, they run, they zigzag, but often they'll just shake. So you could choose to move. You could choose to move your body and I will often take a moment and just shake all over. One way that you can do this if you're out in polite society and you feel like not being the person standing out because you're having a, a some sort of nervous system response is you can put on some music and you can kind of bop along on your commute and let your body move out some of that energy that you've trapped in your nervous system response. The last one that you could do is eat because you're tapping into that rest and digest actual body response that says to relax. But of course, you got to be careful because eating to relax is something that a lot of us do unconsciously. And that's not what we're looking for. We're looking to make a conscious response, something that we choose that we're going to interject into our experience so that we don't go over threshold into basically a trauma hijacked brain. Um, you know, as long as you know that that's what you're doing and you're making that choice purposefully because taking a 10 minute nap, not the same thing as 
calling in sick to work, putting your head under the covers and not going there, even though I think that's sometimes a valid response. If you're doing it day in, day out, probably not. Same thing. If you're like, you know what, I really am going to have a bowl of pasta and it's going to be amazing because that's what I need to rest and digest. Great. If you're doing that every night, several times a day, not great. I think it's, you know, it's one of those things where if you're mindful about it, it's a way of really tapping into something your body wants to do anyway. So those are some of the things that I do instead of letting myself get to the point where I have a freeze response. And um, I want to take another little break because I've been talking for a long time. And when I come back, I want to have the takeaway. And this is my sort of list of things that if the witch wound is something that is resonant for you and you can see the ways in which it's affecting you and you have a visceral or an emotional response to this idea and there's some things that you want to unpack about it, I have some suggestions. And when I come back, that's what we'll talk about. So now it's time for the takeaway. The takeaway is an actionable practice that you can take out in the world as you journey forward. It's something that could be, should be, hopefully will be of use to you. It's a practice. It's not something that, you know, maybe you're going to master right away, but possibly you could. It could be something that will really even today you could start and you'll see results from it something that can help you on your journey and today's takeaway is coming up all right it's time for the takeaway so the takeaway when i'm in an interview episode is an actionable practice that the guest brings in for you the listener to take out into the world and in this takeaway I want to break it into two sections. One is some resources, um, some books to investigate. And the other is a series of steps that I think would be really useful if you are finding that this idea of the witch wound is resonant for you. I want to differentiate between a nervous system response that can often be mitigated by something like a nap or some physical exercise and a an emotional or um, very deep level response that needs to be unpacked. I think there's a difference. I think if, for example, you start thinking about the witch wound and you start to have a very deep visceral response to it, or you start to have a very intense emotional response to it, that this is not something that is as simple as um, some of the things we talked about in terms of nervous system regulation. And an example of this for me, when I began to think about this, I immediately began to think about my matrilineal lineage, my mother's side of the family. And my mother and my grandmother being women who were both um, outspoken and unusual and who did not play always by society's rules and who had consequences in their lives as a result. 
And I felt very emotional about it. I, um, I felt very saddened. I had a lot of anger and fear and mostly grief in connecting to the women in my past, especially through my um, Scots-Irish side, who had suffered under the Catholic Church and who had been unable to be in the world in a way that was free and sovereign. And so in order to release some of that grief and anger and the accompanying fear, I went through a series of steps. And if you're having something similar, I will put this in the show notes and maybe this will be useful for you. So the first step is to name it. One of the most profound things we can do is to name and speak our experience. And just naming it, saying it, becoming aware of it, and being willing to speak it as our experience and our truth is in itself a very healing thing to do. And one of the biggest ways that it's healing is that it takes it out of something that you are having an emotional response to, and it puts it out where you can look at it, and you can see it, and you can think about it, and you can choose responses to it. Um, It also is healing because it's self-validation. And that's a very important part of moving through any kind of trauma is validation from other people, yes, but self-validation is key. The second step that goes along with that is to unshame yourself. So often when we have these responses, we feel a lot of shame. We feel shame for who we are, we feel shame for what we're doing, we feel shame for what we're not and what we're not doing. And particularly if the trauma like the witch wound is around things like, oh, I'm a woman of alternative sexuality or I'm a woman who stands up and can be confrontational or I'm a woman who chooses to express herself in a way that isn't appeasing (laughs) to the um, to men or any of these things that we might be doing that are an authentic expression of who we are that is not necessarily condoned by society, we're going to have the double whammy because you're going to have the shame of being an other and you're going to have the shame of having a response of feeling traumatized by the fear of what that othering might happen to you, right, of the consequences of that othering. And so it's very important that you unshame yourself. If you want to say the word forgive yourself, cool. I like to just think of it as just have compassion. You know, I try to talk to myself the way I talk to someone else. And if you can unshame yourself and say, hey, this is a response. It's based on a credible threat. It makes sense. I'm carrying something and I get to express it, unpack it and process it in my own time and my own way. That is the best approach to it, in my opinion. That's what I think is the the way to approach it. The third step is to titrate it. That's a term that comes from somatic experiencing. I mean, obviously it's a chemistry term, but in this 
context, it comes from somatic experiencing. And it's the idea that in order to make a change, we don't just jump in and force ourselves through something. We don't say, oh, I see that I'm having this response and I want to respond differently. So now I'm going to force myself to get through this and I'm just going to push harder. Because when we do that, we have a an equal and opposite effect where we normally clamp down afterwards. And so if we're going to make changes, the way to do it and the way to enlarge our capacity to have a, um, a response to this trauma that isn't immediately defensive would be to titrate it. So for example, um, this podcast is a great uh, example of my own challenges when it comes to the witch wound, the idea of being seen and being visible and putting myself in front of people is very intimidating to me. And so while I've been in the process of researching and interviewing and all the things that go along with it, I have chosen to be really respectful of my own needs and to say, okay, I'm starting to get really anxious. I'm going to need to go lay down for five minutes, or I'm going to go get up and go do something physical. I'm going to make those choices early and often and not wait until I've pushed myself through an entire, um, say, an entire segment of recording or an entire segment of pitching this to guests and and got to the point where I'm having a really intensive reaction because when you do go over threshold, then you have to go through the repair process. And it's a lot easier to stop before you get to threshold and give yourself some grace and do it in small amounts. As you do that, your capacity to do it will expand. So that's titration. So the fifth step goes along with titration, and that's simply allow yourself to have a response. And by that, I mean have one of those responses, the choosing to move, choosing to breathe, choosing to eat, choosing to nap, um, choosing to go be around resources like animals or people you love. Those are all responses that you can give yourself the grace to have. The sixth and I think um, a very important step is to ritualize it. So when I began to unpack the grief that I had about my family lineage, one of the things that I did to ritualize it is I went to the horse paddock and I find that a very res resourcing place. And I purposefully walked around the paddock talking to my ancestors and explaining my sadness and my anger over what had happened to them and my fear that it would happen to me and then releasing them from needing to protect me from that and also making a commitment and a promise spoken out loud that I would do my part to release the women of the world everywhere from it and in that way, I was able to ritualize my grief. Another way I could have done it would be to write it all down and perhaps burn it in some sort of cleansing bonfire. Or there's any number of ways to ritualize things, and that's probably um, a good topic for another episode. But when you when you ritualize something, you allow it to metabolize. 
And that's the whole point of unpacking it is to not carry it with you, but let it metabolize and transform you. So the last thing that I would say that's very helpful is to co-regulate. Find another woman or a group of women who understand what you're talking about, who may also be having the similar experience, who can relate to what you're saying, who do not need to give you unsolicited advice or judge you, but who can hold you in presence as you deal with the feelings that you're having about this intergenerational trauma. I think that's a really uh, like key piece is being able to co-regulate because ultimately we're all mammals. We're all animals. That's the way that mammals get over trauma is to co-regulate and to be in presence with one another to be seen. So those are the steps of this episode's takeaway. I hope they're useful. And the second part, I just briefly wanted to say, there's a few books that I would recommend. Some of them you've probably heard of. Um, maybe you've heard of all of them. Um, all of them are worth your time. And some of them might even change your life. I can say that um, at least three of these books have done that for me. So the first is My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Minikem. Um, that is a book that uh, I think many people, if not most, but many people have heard of. It is a really important book. Um, it talks about historical intergenerational trauma in a way that is connected to our embodied experience. And it talks about the, the practices that we can all engage in to release this trauma from our culture here in the United States and also in other parts of the world. But it's, it's a profound book. Um, the second book is The God, the Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. I think most people have heard of that by now. It is I, another book that I would say is life-changing because it's such a great overview of what trauma is really about and the ways in which we unconsciously uh, manifest consequences of this trauma and the ways that we can consciously choose to work and process through it. Um, another book that's uh, relevant, particularly as we deal with the, I want to say after effects, although I feel it's still happening here in January 2023, the, the ex collective trauma that we've all experienced from the COVID pandemic um, is something that I think we'll be dealing with for years to come. And so um, this book is called Healing Collective Trauma. It's by Julie Jordan Averett and Thomas Hubel. And then the last book is Dr. Peter Levine's book, Waking the Tiger. And that is the book that talks about the mammalian response of freeze and how animals work through trauma. So those are all my recommendations. Everything that we talked about in this episode will be in the show notes at www.avoiceofherown.com. Um, and yeah, come on over there. Um, I hope that this was enlightening and helpful. Thank you for being with me through it. Thank you for listening and I will catch you next week. Hey friends, 
Thank you again for joining me on A Voice of Her Own. I hope that this episode was useful, that it was inspiring, that it sparked something in you that you can take out into the world. And if you want to hear more episodes or you want to sign up for our newsletter so you never miss one being released, head on over to www.avoiceofherown.com. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can get all the show notes. You can uh, get all the links to everything we talked about and any promotional things that I have going on. So again, thanks for joining us and take that out into the world and be your badass self. <laughs>